Well, hello and welcome to another Booktopia podcast. I'm delighted to be your host of today's uh, session. My name is Scott Whitmont and I am the Business Development and Relationship Manager at Booktopia. And it is my pleasure to welcome a best-selling author, Australian author, Alexandra, Alexandra Joel, uh, the author of the new Royal Correspondent and last year's best-selling The Paris Model. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you so much, Scott. It's great to talk to you. Uh, I'm so happy that I was asked to uh, chat with you today. I just finished your new book uh, and it's just as exciting as your last one. And I know that all the readers are going to love it. What I find really interesting about this book and the Paris model is, you know, you really can't categorize it, which is a good thing because in, in, in shops, they'll want to put it in every section of the shop because it will fit in so many. And we can put it in many sections of our website too. Romance, mystery, social, political history, even towards the end of a book, thriller element uh, comes into play. So in whichever genre you categorize the Royal Correspondent like its predecessor, it's damn good storytelling. So congratulations on that to start with. Thank you so much. So the Royal Correspondent is set between 1960 and 1962, when the life of a female journalist was not quite the same as it is today. Um, so I want to ask you first, how was it different? What opportunities did young women have to succeed in journalism circa 1960? Not, not the same opportunities they have today. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, First of all, it was extremely difficult for a woman to break into journalism. Some women were taken on, but very few. And the view of newspapers in the middle of the last century was women should be quarantined into the women's pages. They weren't up to covering politics. Crime was going to be much too confrontational. So their destiny was to spend their time reporting on hats and dresses, which I like personally, and social occasions, but nothing else. So it was a very narrow path women were expected to tread. Right. So if you want to be a hard-hitting journalist and you're a woman, bad, bad luck. Absolutely. So... Your character, Blaze, you know, as um, we'll find out, she travels from Sydney, an Enmore girl, and she ends up working in Fleet Street in London. Were the challenges and restrictions on women wanting a journalism career equally difficult in Fleet Street at the time in the UK than they were in Australia? Was it the same kettle of fish or was it a bit different? Um, there might have been a few more opportunities, but it was still tough. It was still tough. Um, it was a very conservative time. Interestingly, of course, during the war, when the men went to war, a lot of women worked, one, as war correspondents, and they also worked on the daily newspapers. But when the men came home... Back to the kitchen. Exactly. The one good thing about journalism, certainly in Australia, was that at that time, by law, a woman's job was only paid 75% of a man's. Right. And one profession that was the exception to that was journalism. Right. But the old rule of you needed to give up your job when you got married, that still applied then in it many cases. It applied in the public service. Mm. It applied in also many private companies. Right. It didn't apply in journalism 
but the social pressure to give up your job was w immense. Right, which which uh, Blaze felt herself when uh, uh, she potentially was going to get married and her potential husband did not like the idea of her working. So so when you first told me the title of the book you were writing a year or more ago and that it was about this would-be Aussie journalist Blaze Hill sent to London to cover the wedding of Princess Margaret and Tony Armstrong Jones, I didn't know, of course, that her story would contain so much more than royal social page coverage. I want to ask you what inspired you to involve Blaze in the spy story of John Profumo and Christine Keeler and make that such an important part of the plot. Tell us a bit about the research you did to ensure historical accuracy and, and why you, you wove that into your story. I, well, first of all, I went to London and uh, I talked about it with a couple of leading journalists and then I stalked um, bookstores and there's surprisingly little... Um, there is a book by Philip Knightley um, and there was another very good source of, that I used. Um, but mostly I had to go to newspaper coverage, um, journals of the time. I, and of course, there was that recent series, that's the trial of Christine Keeler, which although yes. not strictly accurate, did provide some degree of background. Why did she do this? Because as you know from my books, I like to illuminate my characters by the events that happen during the era they inhabit. And the Profumo affair was really based on Christine Keeler, who was the epitome of a young woman at the dawn of the swinging 60s, who wanted to be free. She wanted to have relationships with who she wanted to, whether they were sexual relationships or not. And so, in a way, she is set against Blaze. Blaze, like Christine Keeler, has come from a very impoverished family. Christine Keeler grew up in a railway carriage, an abandoned railway carriage. Um, Blaze wasn't quite that bad. But you can see that with Blaze's supportive family, she's been able to, and her sheer pluck and intelligence, tear herself away from those conditions. Whereas Christine Keeler has been sort of destined to spiral out of control. And of course, the Cold War, well, first of all, it offers such wonderful dramatic elements. But again, it shows that this young journalist is thrust into the middle of issues which everyone is trying to grapple with. But in her case, she has a personal stake. Perhaps for some listeners who don't know about the Profumo affair, you could just a brief summary of who Christine Keeler and John Profumo were and why what this the affair was. John, Not everybody knows the history. <laughs> John Profumo was the minister. He was the Secretary of State for War in the British government at the height of the Cold War. He had a brief affair with Christine Keeler, who I suppose would be called a good time girl. Yeah. Um, she worked as a kind of a model. She'd been a showgirl, a topless showgirl. Um, they had a fling. However, it was thought that she also had a fling with a Russian spy. And so the conspiracy was concocted mainly by 
the leader of the opposition, Wilson, who desperately wanted to become prime minister and turf Macmillan out, that Profumo had seriously compromised the British government's secrets by exchanging pillow talk with a woman who then went on to sleep with a Russian spy. In fact, they all met in a swimming pool at a stately home called Clifton. And you could just imagine this scene where they're all splashing around in the pool together and events transpired. The great problem for Perfumo was that he lied to the parliament and Macmillan backed him. And in fact, a letter, a letter that Keeler wrote and sold to the Mirror was brought to Parliament's attention. And that's why in the book you'll see Keeler sells or attempts to sell another very scandalous letter because she had a habit of doing this. She was a girl that had to survive any way she could. She wanted to better herself and uh, make opportunity for herself and she wasn't well educated. She did it whatever way she could. And of course, the whole affair did lead to the downfall of the Macmillan government. So it's it's great uh, fodder for, for drama in your story and works really well. What amuses me is the thought that such an uneducated girl would talk state secrets pillow talk with Profumo and would then want to discuss it with uh, Yevchenko, the, the Russian she was sleeping with also. You know, I doubt she wanted to talk politics much when she was in bed with these men. But anyway, that was the suggestion. <laughs> yes, that really was a conspiracy that was cooked up. I don't think she would have been interested. I don't think who wants to talk about nuclear missiles when you're in bed. I don't know about what turns you on. kind of wouldn't do it for me. Um, but that was the, that was the thing. And that really brought, I think you mentioned Margaret and Tony's wedding. I think that a royal, a daughter of a king, married a commoner for the first time in 400 years, and not just a commoner, but a racy photographer at that. Yes. And this Minister of State for War having this public affair with a racy good time girl really changed British society and kind of the world. It was the start of the swinging 60s. It swept away the Edwardian standards of yes. the past and after an anything goes era. Yeah, that's right. Look, you dedicated the book, I noticed, to your late father, Sir Asher Joel, who I, I knew was a wonderful man. And like Blaze, he started life in the inner city suburb of Enmore, became a newspaper journalism cadet and ended up moving in royal circles years later. How much did his true life story inspire the royal, inspire the royal correspondent? It certainly inspired um, the origins of the book because at that time, Enmore was not gentrified as it is now. It was a dump. It was a real dump. Working class suburb. Absolutely. And my dad's father, Harry, said to him, just as Blaze's father says in the book, the only way out of this dump is via the four P's. What are the four P's? Priest, police, pugilist, as in pro boxer, or press. And so my dad, like Blaze, chose press. And as you mentioned, 
Well, as a Jewish boy, he wasn't going to be a priest, was he? <laughs> or a boxer. Um, no, and and um, you know, as the as the force was dominated by Irish Catholics, that probably wasn't up for him, and he was of diminutive stature. So, yeah, he was never going to be a pro boxer, um, and he was bright. But when I say he joined the paper, this example is that he left Clevo Boys High at 14 and joined the Daily Telegraph. He went on, as you said, to live a remarkable life, became a parliamentarian, organised many grand state occasions and royal events. But I began wondering, what if he'd been born a girl? What challenges would she have faced? And who might she have become? Yeah, great, great idea. And I'm sure your dad would have loved it that he inspired uh, Blaise, the female equivalent. Of course, your own career has influenced Blaise's story also, as it did Grace in the Paris model. You've worked in the fashion industry, edited fashion magazines, and written two definitive works on the history of fashion in Australia. So it's not surprising, I found, that iconic fashion designers like Mary Quant or Yves Saint Laurent, or a model like Jean Shrimpton should make cameo appearances in the Royal Correspondent. Even the Dior model Grace Woods, protagonist of your last novel, rates a mention, which I thought was very clever for you to just uh, put her in there in passing. I'm guessing that fashion history will creep into all your novels, given your background. Mary Quant is credited with being one of the designers who created hot pants and the miniskirt. How instrumental were designers like her in shaping the 60s and the new mod look that helped change the way women were viewed? Mary Quant was a revolutionary, there is no doubt. Um, up until then, fashion had always been dictated by those who inhabited the rarefied salons of Paris, as was the case with Christian Dior. This was really the first time when fashion came from the street. And that's what Mary Quant took her inspiration from. And the clothes, instead of the, you know, terrifyingly expensive couture clothes, were terribly cheap. You could, you know, run in every week and get a different fab outfit. So this really, again, is part of the reason I love writing about fashion um, is because it reveals so much about the times and also about the character. So here is our character, Blaze, who comes from a place with no fashion sense. She's got no money. She dresses out of St. Vincent's de Paul. She's gone through a stage where she's been educated at the newspaper by a fabulous female mentor into understanding the beauties of the elegance of Christian Dior and so forth. She arrives in London and that's turned up on its head. We're looking at a whole new world where the emphasis is not on poise and maturity, but it's on youth and energy. I, I was uh, interested doing research after reading the book. You got me interested to learn that uh, Mary Quant became Dame Mary Quant and, right. uh, and that she's actually still alive. She's 90 years old. Um, and of course, her, her dresses were known that they were bold colours and shapes and, and uh, something like, you know, the fashion world hadn't seen before that time. It, she, she dominated the King's Road and 
um, her shop was like a club and all the fabulous models, photographers, pop stars flocked there. Well, I don't want to give the plot away, but it's safe to say that you credit the Queen's then Assistant Private Secretary, Martin Charteris, with a lot of power and sway to influence, uh, with the Queen's authority, of course, influence the police, security and the press. How, how true is the notion that the powers that be in the palace then and now actually wield enormous power, which is not just ceremonial or in name only? I found that thought really interesting. Certainly at that time, again, post-war, the palace still exercised an enormous amount of power. These days, they are hard put to keep any story out of the media, as we know. We, we see the lot, you know, whether it's Fergie toe-sucking or whatever. In those days, there was a gentleman's agreement between the newspaper proprietors, who were usually Lord somebody or Sir somebody, and the palace, that they would print nothing that was compromising. Of course, they were all over Princess Margaret's ill-fated uh, romance with Peter Townsend, but that was not scandalous because they weren't seen to transgress in, or if they did, it certainly wasn't reported, any of the standards of the day. Well, it's scandalous that he was divorced, but he wasn't married at the time they're having an affair. So that would have been scandalous. But, well, you know. and, and also the affair itself was not reported on. Yeah, yeah. Whereas these days, it's all out there. So, yes, the, pal the pal palace power has been diminished over time. But I'm sure it's still there. If they... If, if they, if they turned the tap off of uh, press being able to have access to the royal family or to events, uh, you know, the press would not want that. And so they probably still hold some sway with uh, an influence. But as you say, not, not the way they did, the way you describe in the early 60s. And they are not without some behind-the-scenes political influence either. Right. However, it diminished again during the 60s when the whole class structure started to be challenged for the first time. Yes, exactly. Well, I love your historical research and the real life characters you weave into your novels. Uh, as I mentioned to you before, Solari Gentle does this in her Rowland Sinclair series um, of historical novels too. You must do quite a lot of research to get the appearances of these characters correct. Um, I love uh, the appearance in this book of the iconic photographer Cecil Beaton. Uh, he comes across in the book as the fun-loving, slightly outrageous and naughty character that by all accounts he was in real life. You had him assisting Blaze in a secret photographic assignment uh, to gather evidence. Is there any real-life evidence that Beaton might have worked as a spy or as assisted authorities undercover with their inquiries? Or was that, was that all from the imagination of Alexandra Joel? That was based on my knowledge of his wartime activities because Cecil Beaton is known as the royal photographer and the photographer of devs and of society and of beautiful fashions. But in fact, during the war, he was recruited to, and he, on the recommendation of the Queen, that shows you the personal power to the Ministry for Information, to take undercover shots of, of military installations, of the Blitz, and a range of World War II incidents 
So knowing this and knowing that there was another side to Cecil Beaton, I thought, yes, he, it deserves to be shown because apparently it's among his best and most dramatic work. And certainly he always said it was the work he was most proud of. That's really fascinating. He, he's such a great character. His, his, uh, his books he's written and his books of photography are still bestsellers. And, uh, you know, he's long remembered as uh, an amazing photog society photographer, but obviously there was much more to him. So that's I great. I that him an opportunity to strut his stuff on yeah. stage. Good on you. That's great. So, so when people read your book, The Royal Correspondent, what would you like them to take away from it? What, what message, if any, would you like readers to, uh, to ruminate on uh, when they're reading this book? I think that there is a strong feminist message in the book. Blaze is a woman before her time. And yet many of the obstacles she faces, women today still face. And I wanted them, readers, to see the complexity of dealing with that situation, what you need to bring to it as a woman and what is required of you to surmount um, those views or opinions or obstacles. I wanted people to have fabulous time reading and also to give them this sense of history moving. You know, what did it mean to be a woman then? And that's why I don't just deal with her professionally, but I also deal with her romantically. So we get to see how she negotiates romance, but also sexuality. And I wouldn't say I'm explicit, but there obviously are. I don't know. There are a couple of hot scenes there. I had to undo my top button of my shirt and, you know, wave a fan a, a few times there. <laughs> there are a few hot and heavy scenes. And I thought that was essential. One, because of the character and um, the, her relationship, but also to show how life had changed so much for women and the choices they were prepared to make and how they were prepared to own their own sexuality. Yes, uh, and the contrast being you know, the advice her mother gave her is, you know, you don't give up anything to a man unless you've got a ring on the finger. That's a lot of social pressure when, you know, all the women were brought up, taught that, most were, at that time, and uh, that didn't quite match with the um, swinging 60s <laughs> and, exactly. and what was changing. Yeah. Uh, I, the other thing I like that you, you brought into it, uh, you know, historically was uh, the polio, the scourge of polio at the time. The Blazer's sister uh, had had polio as a child. She had calipers on her legs and just how many people were affected by polio in those days, which, you know, has more or less disappeared now. But uh, you brought that to life at that period. It affected a lot of families and it was socially interesting that you, you brought that into the story too, her sister back, back in Enmore. There are so many parallels you can see in the book despite the fact that it is set 60 years ago, because aren't we enduring our own scourge at the moment? Exactly. Exactly. And at the time, I mean, it was fascinating. Um, the Queen made a tour to Australia, but she, to Perth, she had to, she moored her boat. She was 
on Britannia in order to be safe. And so she didn't go ashore. So this problem of polio was intense and had seemingly no solution until a whole-fetch scene came along. That's right. Well, uh, you know, you talked about um, uh, Blaze's sexuality uh, and what happened in her personal life. I hesitate to ask this, but without giving the plot away, the book does raise the question, can a woman ever really trust a man? Just as much as a man can trust a woman. Oh, what a great answer. What a great answer. Yes. And, of course, in the story, without giving the plot away, she, one man can be trusted, another can't, but uh, you have to figure out who's who. Which one? Uh, which one, exactly. Kept me guessing. <laughs> so what's next? You you were already planning this book when we talked about your last. I um, wouldn't be surprised if you're now planning your your next novel. Is there something you can give us a teaser about with that? Well, it's a bit of a crazy time at the moment. I'm living in three universes because I'm loving talking to people about the Royal Correspondent. I'm still doing Zoom interviews. We're doing one tomorrow with Canada. Um internationally on the Paris model. And of course, I'm in the early stages of writing my next book, which will be set in the New York art world in the crazy greed is good 1980s. Wow. So we've, we've had the 50s, 60s and 80s and Paris, London and New York. Uh, very exciting. I look forward to that whenever that comes. And congratulations on you've, you've sold rights to the Paris model all around the world. And did, did, did I hear for uh, a television series or something um, also? My first book, Rosetta, was optioned for the screen. Rosetta was. Yes. I was thrilled to discover, even though it's pre-publication Australia, um, North America has already bought the Royal Correspondent which is really exciting. Fantastic. Well, you deserve the success that you're enjoying. Uh, as I said at the beginning, you're a master storyteller and uh, I couldn't put any of your books down. Rosetta, which is a non-fiction uh, about the mystery in your family, about your great-grandmother and, and uh, what happened to her. And... Uh, the Paris model and now the Royal Correspondent. So I encourage everybody listening to please go to Booktopia where they are all for sale. Uh, and if you haven't read them, you should buy all three and read them and uh, you'll thoroughly enjoy them. And as you've heard from this discussion, there's a lot of food for thought, a lot of good things for discussion in book clubs. If you're looking for a good uh, book club book to talk about, any of the three would be great for book club discussion. Thank you for the contribution you're making to Australian literature and storytelling when we're all semi-locked down in different parts around the country. We're all looking for good books and you're providing them. So thank you. Uh, let everyone buy them from Booktopia and good luck with this one. Thank you for talking with us today, Alex. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.